Hi, I'm Beck Rayner, and this is the Military Wife Life podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, and embraces the spouses behind the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever, whenever, and Defence Bank offers competitive products and services tailored for ADF members and defence spouses. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. A chance meeting in a jazz bar in Sydney in 1976 between an army officer and a teacher would be the beginnings of this love story with a sky blue cardigan playing a pretty important role. Welcome to the podcast, Your Excellency, Mrs. Linda Hurley. Good morning. A cardigan wouldn't usually be the first thing you associate with an army officer. Can you tell us about the connection, Mrs. Hurley? Well, David had come down from Townsville. Obviously, it's very hot. (laughs) And I met him in August and he had a cardigan, I guess, in case he got cold. I never, ever saw him wearing that cardigan. It was a very nice cardigan. I regret that I don't still have it. But I was in a jazz bar and he came over and said, would you like a drink? And I was a bit taken aback. I'm really ashamed to say this, but I'd been warned not to have anything to do with anyone in the army because I'd studied in Wagga Wagga at Magrina College. Before I went there, a friend of my sister's, who was married to someone in the army, said don't have anything to do with any army people in Wagga. And I spent three years there. I didn't ever see an army person in the whole three years I was there. And suddenly this man with short hair is asking me if I want a drink. (laughs) And I said, no, thank you. And and then he said, well, can we join you? He was with a friend. And I said, well, I suppose you can. And that's when he said, will you mind my cardigan when he went to get drinks? And he came back to the table and a few hours later I thought, you're really quite nice. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It's the luckiest cardigan he's ever had to purchase. (laughs) And I don't think I've ever seen him wear a cardigan since. Lucky he had to come down from the hot weather to the cooler weather and had to um, have a cardigan. So the rest is history. Absolutely. <laughs> so did, I guess, finding out that His Excellency General, the Honourable David Hurley, was in the Army, have any weight in your decision to go forward with a relationship? Did you have any idea about what it would mean to date and eventually go on to marry someone in the Defence Force? No. <laughs> no. I, um, I saw David the following night. He took me out for dinner. And I said, well, my girlfriend has to come too. And his mate came. And we had dinner at a very nice restaurant in Sydney. And by this time, I really liked him, even though it was only the second day. <laughs> and he was sitting in the, in the restaurant and a woman and a man came in. And this woman came straight over to David and said, hello, David, kiss, kiss. And I thought, okay, you've got girls all over <laughs> over the place. Anyway, we had a really nice dinner and he went off to Singleton and I remember saying to my mother, he's really nice mum, but I don't think I'll ever see him again. But anyway, I did see him again and he came down again and we went to the ballet and then I met him a third time and the poor man was spending all this money on air flights from Townsville, which was quite, quite expensive back then. And we had a fondue with some friends and then the next day he said, Will you come and live with me in Townsville? And I said, no. Uh, by the, at this that day, I actually met his mother and his sister. We went to Wollongong to meet them. 
And it was the next day that he said, will you come and live with me? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, will you marry me? Like, that was his next question. And I said, yes. So that's how we started. I think we'd seen each other about five times. Wow. You're like, no, I'm not going to come and live with you. I'm doing my own thing. Will you marry? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's quite what it was like. And then we had a few months. So I met in August and we got married the following March. So I got to know him over the Christmas holidays. He came down and I went up to town still for a few weeks and met a lot of his friends. But I really, I still didn't really understand what a defence life would be like. And I don't think we talked about it that much. And we were just in love. <laughs> yeah, you you never really do know until you start living it, I guess. Mm, yeah. So obviously you became engaged and then married a year later in 1977. At that point, you'd only seen each other the five times or the, the back and forth a few times. What happened once you were married and you moved to Townsville to be together? How did that all work? Well, I think I looked at it as a bit of an adventure. Like I was really excited that I was leaving where I'd grown up and going out to another part of the country. And my original plan had been to go overseas with a girlfriend and she's forgiven me for not actually carrying that out and I still talk to her <laughs> and see her so to me it was an adventure and we drove well David didn't have his driver's license so I drove through all the country towns and he had his elves and he drove through all the the open road parts and then we arrived at our little masonette that he organized before before the wedding and that was our first home and Luckily, it was furnished because we didn't have much furniture. <laughs> it was yeah, it was the beginning of being a military wife. Yeah. And I, I was fortunate enough to get a teaching job, so that was really good. And I made lifelong friends from that school, some of the staff there. One girl in particular, we're very close friends. And I, we actually introduced her to her military husband. <laughs> so David didn't go away a lot. I was only there for nine months and then we were posted somewhere else. I can remember being alone in the house, but I don't have, like it wasn't as if you went along like for months months so and yeah we were just young and happy and having a good time and that the norm back then wasn't always that the spouse would move to the location and and be able to connect into the community through a career and a job sometimes it was the case where the defense spouse followed the defense member around and didn't have that initial connection to connect in and then obviously like you just mentioned you made a lifelong friend from having that job and that Mm. career that you went into how important was it for you establishing yourself and and making those connections straight away to be able to feel like you're part of something certainly having that job made a huge difference if I'd been sitting at home wondering what I was going to do every day that would have been pretty awful but I also I got out and I went and did a dressmaking course and reconnected with the church there and it was the type that nine months just went so quickly my mother came up for a couple of weeks holidays so we went up to Cairns with her we had a holiday up there Magnetic Island was there and you know on weekends there was always something to do it wasn't as if we had to stay at home and clean the house because it wasn't very big (laughs) didn't take long (laughs) and we had of course we had other friends David had other friends from Duntroon that were also posted there so we had we had a lot of dinner parties actually and that was in the day when you had sort of four courses I don't do that anymore (laughs) but I did like entertaining and I did like having dinner parties and then children came along and when you were in the thick of kids and career and moving and all that comes with defense life what did it take on your part to be the one holding down the home front when it did come time for the governor general to you know have time away or go on exercise and you know you're juggling everything back home we had seven years before we had children 
So in that seven years, we'd lived in England and we lived in Germany and, you know, we'd had a pretty good time and made lots of friends over there as well who we're still in touch with. So that seven years, I worked for two years in Germany and England. I didn't work, but five of those years, I was fortunate enough to get employment, not as a teacher because teaching, there was a glut of teachers. So I spent one year in the um, public service. I did relief teaching. I worked as a secretary and I worked in an optometry business. So it was disappointing I couldn't teach, but I always managed to be able to get a job. And then when we came back from overseas, that's when the baby started to come along. And I wanted to be a full-time mother. And, you know, David was kind of the breadwinner and I was the person who looked after the home front. And I guess, I mean, I can't say I loved it. I didn't sort of love it when he went away, but you just... It's just something you have to accept. You know, I had a lot of friends when the baby started coming. I still got involved in you know, play group and did a lot of activities with the church. So I was surrounded by you know, supportive friends. And then, I, and then we kept moving as well. So we've lived in 30 houses and we've been fortunate enough to live in America and also in um, Malaysia. So we had two children there. And then when we went to America, we had three children. So during those years of growing up, I did a lot of volunteer work at the school. And, and I was actually then offered a job as a, an assistant. But that job only lasted about three months because then we, we moved again. So I didn't like David going away, but I just accepted it and counted the days till he'd be back again. And when he was back, he was a really good dad. Like he tried to, you know, spend as much time with the kids as he could. And he didn't ever come home and he didn't talk about his work much. And I've actually learned more about him in the last six years, seven years, hearing him telling other people about some of the army things he did. And I'll say to him, I didn't know you did that. I didn't know that happened. So he didn't, he didn't come home and sort of share his work. He just came home and was a dad and a husband and did all the family things. Actually, some of the spouses that come on the podcast end up listening to their episode with their defence member and the defence member ends up saying the same thing about when they tell their story about being a spouse that, oh, I didn't know you did that or you navigated that. And it's actually really good to open up conversation and to learn more about each other's experiences because the defence member is having their experience and the defence family is having their experience and either one can never really fully understand. They can empathise, but they're just never going to have the same experience. But it's amazing to hear when they do start telling those stories. You're like, oh, wow, really? Oh, didn't know that. And I guess maybe David just saw it as two different worlds. I don't know. But when he was home, we were heavily involved in mess life and things. When I don't think the mess life is like it was back then, but that was a big part of our lives. That was probably our social, you know, dressing up, kind of going out thing that we did. We certainly didn't go to restaurants and things like people do now. I guess we couldn't afford it. I was a very good budgeter. So, yeah, life was family and friends. And And you mentioned that you had 30 moves. How did you navigate that? Did you even get a chance to unpack at some of those moves or were there boxes that stayed packed for a few moves? No, we started off small, (laughs) but as we... I guess David became more senior and we had more money. Our furniture improved and we're quite fond of antiques and we still are. Everything used to be unpacked. And this is the first move we've had on the one government house in Sydney, Beyond Defence. It's the first time that we've actually got things in boxes because we haven't had to unpack everything because a lot of the things here are provided. And that can be really frustrating. David's actually been looking for something recently and we've got storage off-site and we've got storage here and he can't find what he's been looking for it'll be it'll be somewhere so no it generally before these last two jobs we always unpacked everything 
and it took it used to take probably a week to get it all in place and sorted and then sometimes you know 12 months later you'd be packing up again I guess we got better at it I mean in the early days it was very thorough you had to itemize everything and when you left a house people came in and checked it all out and it had to be perfect but later on it became easier you didn't have to do nearly as much paperwork the later years were much easier so what was the highlight of all those moves? But is there one that stands out as being a favourite or a memory that you can remember from all of those moves that stands out? We were fortunate enough to live in three heritage houses. So the bungalow in Sydney at Victoria Barracks, that was our first historic home. And we were only there for a year and it was very sad when we had to leave there. And I remember driving away from my job, weeping, you know, driving back to <laughs> Canberra because David had returned to Canberra the term before I had and um, that was a really special house and then the two houses in Duntroon they're also very special and the history there because I love history and just finding out the history of those two homes in Duntroon and particularly Bridges house because I was quite a fan of Mrs Bridges Lady Bridges and she had a really tough life she had very sad life so much sadness in her life losing children and a husband and I have a lot of admiration for her and living in those houses is, it's really is special and you know it's not forever but that the day I left that house we moved out everything was taken and I had to go back and return the key to the DHA man and he came and I went into every room and by the time I finished I was almost weeping and um, he came and got the key I gave him the key and I had my last thing I had to do was say goodbye to the gardener and I went out to say goodbye to Andy because he'd been the gardener at the two houses we lived in and I just started crying I just started weeping <laughs> And poor Andy didn't know what to do. He said, just get in the car, just go, just go. And I had a really lovely relationship with him over the six years. And, you know, we used to solve problems with the world in the garden. And um, that was very, very sad. I mean, I've got over it because you know that all these things aren't forever. But that was a really special part of our military life and it was, it was the end. And, I mean, a little bit of comfort is that, you know, if you're ever in Canberra, you could just take a little drive through Duntroon and... Hmm. and- <laughs> Garden's still doing well. Yeah, yeah, you do. Whenever we're there, I always have a sneak in the gate. No, I don't go in the gate. I mean, I look through the gate. You know, we had a, a lot of very happy times there. Yeah. Nine out of ten defence spouses wish they found out about defence banks sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning, has cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, and pin change functionality, savings roundups, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Fitbit Pay, Garmin Pay, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. The Governor-General commanded the 1st Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment, during Operation Solace in Somalia in 1993, and he went on to receive the Distinguished Service Cross. But you mentioned that when you waved him off when he was leaving, you turned around and, and looked at your three kids and who were at that stage eight, six and two years old, which, you know, is huge, and thought, I've got three kids and a whole group of women to support and I, I just need to rally. And part of that was starting the Spouses of Somalia. Can you tell us about the Spouses of Somalia and how that came about? There was a wonderful um, the Warren officer that's in charge of the battalion. His wife was Dynamo and she really deserves all the credit and some other wives as well. There was a group of them and I I was involved in that as well and supportive and we all kind of worked as a team there were probably about 
a dozen ladies, and we called ourselves the Spouses of Somalia. I mean, but that that was everybody, all the women. But this little group of, I suppose you'd call them, the organising committee, whatever, they did a lot of work. And the first six weeks was the tough time because in the first six weeks we knew nothing. We heard nothing. There was no feedback about what was happening. And that's when we started the SOS, which is Spouses of Somalia, and it was just a typed up, very plain stapled together piece of paper that was sent in the mail. And we had outings. One of them was to the Billabong Sanctuary. So this newsletter, in the beginning, it was it was sent to families as well the whole time. And in the beginning, what all the women wanted was information. And we did have, we had a few big meetings. And once there was connection with the men by letters, was much easier. People had contact. They were in touch with their loved one. Parents were in touch with their, their sons. So the need... For getting that information out decreased but we continued with that magazine and you know each month we group of women would gather together they'd be I guess they were using a cassette stepner I'm not sure what they anyway we would sit and we packed them the families had a choice of staying in Townsville and then they'd be supported there by the one RAR people that stayed behind or they could fly home to their families and I chose to stay although I did go to Sydney for three weeks so and then came back I didn't I didn't want I wanted to be with the other women and I wanted to be in Townsville and so that's what I did. I got heavily involved with the school there and it was a great school and the school were really supportive. I think a lot of the people there didn't think I had a husband and the church was really supportive and, you know, I, I felt loved and looked after. So as that need for that information decreased, I guess the need for connection with others that were going through the same thing took its place because you you were feeling okay with getting that little bit of information and feeling secure in what was happening over there. But then the connection took over and being with other families and, and spouses and, you know, defence kids that were also experiencing the separation and going through the same thing was what you then went forward with doing it and what came from, I guess, connecting through information. Yeah. So I had my little close-knit group of friends, but then I had the wider group of, you know, all the ladies, all the ones who wanted to be involved. So I haven't kept in touch with every single lady, but the girls who I became close friends with, I certainly am still in touch with them. And I think that there was support if people needed it. And we we went out and did um, the stuff the men do. You know, we put our cams on and some of the soldiers would take us out and run us through fitness things and going through mud and all that fun stuff. The men left behind, they were really good to us and, you know, looked after us. And then when the men did come back, we had the big parade. That was a real highlight. And it was in the parade, David led the parade, and I was standing, probably everybody else watching, and he actually turned and smiled at me, which normally he wouldn't do that when he was marching, but he did. And, um, yeah, that was very special. And when he came like when he landed and came through the airport, I just burst into tears. <laughs> and he grabbed Amelia because she was a little one and he's holding her and then we're all hugging and it was just like he was home. <laughs> so it was just it was just so wonderful he was home. And he came home with these for the kids. They all had little knitted Somalia hats. And that night we went out to the pizza hut. That's what he wanted for dinner, pizza. So And all the kids all wore their little hats and it was just... Yeah, it was really special. And, and I just expected it to come back to normal. And I kind of said, it's garbage night tonight. <laughs> you know, like I'd been putting in that performance or something. He said, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so it didn't take him long to get back into, you know, being with the family. 
<laughs> because you said that's it you've had yeah. your pizza hut now now it's time to get back into routine yeah. but it was it was very it was very very exciting and you know you don't often realize the extra weight you're carrying until they do return and you sort of breathe that sigh of relief and like you mentioned you burst out in tears when he came home and it's not that you weren't handling it or that you couldn't do it but it's that you don't really realize sort of how much you're holding your breath until they come Mm -hmm. home during that time I thought I was doing very well until my eight-year-old daughter she gave me a wake-up call when I was saying good night to her and saying her prayers and and she said you don't seem to be happy anymore mummy and I thought I was I thought I was going very well. So that was that was a wake-up call and I thought, oh, oh, you know, okay, I better, I don't know, try harder. So, but, yeah, the wisdom of an eight-year-old, I think as a family we did pretty well. We survived. And so the Governor-General has said that he really understands the old saying about the isolation and loneliness of command. Did you also feel that at all when you went from being an army family to your husband being appointed Chief of Defence? I guess at the time you're still a spouse, you're still a defence family trying to navigate life and kids and family and all that's going on in the background. Just because your husband's appointed to the role of CDF doesn't mean that, you know, normal life and, you know, challenges isn't still going on. What was the isolation like for you? during that time I guess he'd been the vice chief so I was used to how hard he worked so when he became the CDF I retired from teaching and then I found out about this pastoral care course so I went and did the pastoral care course so I had well I was studying for six months during that course and then I worked as a volunteer pastoral carer so I still have my own kind of job I think a woman needs ownership of something you're not just someone's husband and but then I was free to travel with him so David didn't ever discuss things with me but he would he left the house at about five in the morning and then he'd go to work all day come home at seven he wasn't traveling of course we'd have dinner together and then he would go to his study and I'd do whatever I was doing watch TV or whatever and I would go in sometimes to him and I would say, okay, I just need you know, two minutes of your time. And I'd rattle off the things I wanted to tell him or ask him. And then I'd say, thank you very much. Good night. I'm going to bed. <laughs> so that's what it was like every night. The weekends were different. So Saturday, he always had Saturday off. or he tried to. Like when I say off, he wasn't in the study working. And then Sunday, he'd go to church. And then he'd spend all Sunday afternoon and maybe sometimes into the evening getting ready for the rest of the week. So I just accepted that's how it was and that's why I've always had to have, you know, passions of my own because otherwise you're just sitting at home. And also when you're you're married to someone who's in a position like that, you don't want to just be the little tag along. Well, I've always wanted to have ownership of something, my own identity, not just, oh, she's married to the CEO or even now she's married to the governor general. So that's how we manage. We always had a holiday. We went on one holiday, I think it was an anniversary, special anniversary, and he didn't ever tell me that he had comms and all this kind of stuff in a bag <laughs> just in case, but he was, we went to Lord Howe Island and there was one policeman on Lord Howe Island and he must have known about it and um, he met us when we got off the plane and he's talking to us and I'm thinking, people here are going to think he's criminal like <laughs> the policeman's talking to Anyway, the policeman, we'd see him around the, you know, around the traps and say hello, but we actually had that whole holiday with no interference, no dramas, no, it was, um, it was a great holiday. You must feel like Lord Howe Island is this magical place then that you 
it is a magical place. (laughs) No, it was a very, very good holiday. Of course, like you mentioned, defence partners these days, it isn't the case where we are just the trailing spouse anymore because we want to have our own careers and we're, you know, we're coming from generations where we are able to have our own careers and and do our own thing alongside the defence member, but also from necessity as well, you know, financially, it has to be dual income um, these days. But when you did retire, and like you mentioned, you retired from teaching and then became a qualified pastoral carer at the Canberra Hospital and Hospice, I guess you went from one caring role to another. So who cares for you? What is it that the Governor General does for you that allows you to feel cared for? What's that one thing that, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. that, that smile when he was in the march, or what's that one thing that he does for you that you think, you know, he might be busy from 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., but there's that one thing that makes you feel really cared for? Well, as I said, he always had that Saturday off. So, you know, we might have just gone to the shops, but we were together. Just kind of being there, he was very supportive of my teaching and my pastoral care work. And he always came, you know, when I graduated, when I did my upgrade in education, he came to the graduation, bought me a lovely piece of jewellery and you know, when I did my pastoral care work, he was very proud of me. And yes, we can talk together. Like he talks a lot more now than he used to. <laughs> so I think just being with him and going on holidays, bushwalking. He knows I like bushwalking and I think he likes it as well. But I think he does it because he knows I like it. Yeah, you know, he's there's ever been anything that I, you know, special where I'm thanked for doing something, he's always, you know, supportive. Now in this role, I do a lot of singing, he doesn't ever say, look, you know, I don't think you should do that. He's happy for me to have my passions and pursue my passions. But, yeah, he's always been supportive. We're playing a lot of games at the moment. I don't like it when he wins all the time. But... <laughs> what games? What game is he, are you he trying to win against? Well, I won last night. We played Rummy Cub last night. And we're also playing Sequence. And he's probably better at that than I am. But I'm getting better. We're both quite competitive. You know, we'll sit together and watch a movie and particularly during all this lockdown. But we're both very frustrated about not being able to get out and about and do what a Governor General and Governor General's wife does. So we're doing what we're doing now, lots of Zooming and um, phone calls. And in this job, we do it together. But at the moment, it is it is hard because we're not doing what Governor Generals would normally do. And because you are so used to being in a caring role in whatever you do, you're not able to. And if that's how you you draw from other empathising and caring and having those conversations and connecting with other people, it's really hard. Despite the fact that you can still do it via Zoom, mm-hmm. it's not the same as being in the room with someone and being able to really have that conversation with them and learn about them and and you can't hug but during floods and fires and all the other disasters we've experienced a hug can say a thousand words one of the constants like you mentioned in your life and something that you found joy and comfort in is music and you're part of the Australian Military Wives Choir what is it about music that you find so uplifting and and why is it something that you would encourage other defence partners to get involved with? Well, I think there's a lot of scientific evidence that singing in particular is good for us. And I've loved singing since I was a little girl. I've just always loved singing. And I don't understand the scientific evidence, but I believe it. I know if I'm having a bad day, if I just sing a few songs, I just feel so much better. And I guess I had the opportunity with children to do a lot of singing. And I have been involved with a few you know, different choirs, the church choir and the military wives choir, which is fantastic. We have lunches regularly for the ambassadors and high commissioners that come to represent the country in Australia. And then we normally, when they present their credentials, we have a lunch. And I started, you know, we would sing our little song. And then I started inviting other people 
from different countries. Well, now the word is spreading and we have a bit to do with the diplomatic call and people are bringing songs ready to share. So <laughs> I just want to spread the joy of singing. So there's a playlist whenever a lunch happens. There's like requests. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, they are coming with songs from their country and wanting to share them. It's I've just seen too much evidence of people coming alive when you sing. What was the posting location that you would have loved to have gone back to if you got a chance to be posted back there or you would have liked to have stayed longer at? What stands out in oh. your mind as being the favourite? Well, all of them. <laughs> I mean, particularly the overseas ones. I wouldn't mind going back to London again. <laughs> and we lived in Europe, so that well, it's really hard. Being in America was really special. That's a very hard question. They were all special. Even the little fibro house in Wagga Wagga in 1978, which had the coldest bathroom in the world like we loved everyone there wasn't a posting that I could say oh my goodness I hate this here I want to get out of here and everyone was different and everyone was special in its, its way of course it was great living in you know wonderful heritage houses but as I said when David was a lieutenant and we lived in this little fibro house that had come out from England after the second world war we just like it was a pretty daggy house but we made it home. So when you both retire, what would you like that to look like? What are you envisioning, you know, when you eventually do step back from all that you're both doing? Obviously, you're both in roles where you're interacting with a lot of people, you're caring for a lot of people, you're connecting. What does retirement look like for both of you? Well, I want to move over to my own house, which is all being renovated. I just want to play, unpack and play and play in my house and my garden and not have to think about every night when I go to bed, look at my program for the book tomorrow. I won't have to do that. And to be honest, I'm not sure what I want to do. I have the opportunity to go back and do pastoral care work and that's something I might do. I might do hospital visiting through church maybe. I'd like to travel. We both like to travel because that's what people our age are supposed to be doing. <laughs> and I'm not sure what David will do. I hope he does something, but I hope it's not going to be all-consuming and become another job. And I don't think it will be. And spend time with my grandchildren. We've made our house big enough that all the children can come and stay. I want to be a nana. Yeah, I want to be a nana. Yeah. And what does being a nana mean to you? Does that mean teaching them how to cook cupcakes or what's the, the thing that you envision when you, you know, obviously it's bringing tears to your eyes right now. What is the perfect situation that you envision everyone on the couch watching your favourite movie from your childhood or what is the vision that you hold on to when you think about that? Well, the time I've had with Charlie before lockdown was I just sat with him on the floor and played with him and that's what I want to do with Sabrina as well and take them for walks in the pram and have sleepovers and well I'm not sure about sleepovers they might wake up in the night <laughs> but yeah now have sleepovers and take them to the zoo and do what grandmas do laughing with them running with them taking them to the park and swimming with them and just being a nana no rules and no schedules at nana's yeah. house <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly and also giving their parents a break. And I think I think Charlie knows this, but really the only people he's seeing in real life are his parents. But that's just under three years away. And so do you have any advice for a new defence spouse about to embark on the journey that is defence life? What would you say to them? Well, I think it's very different now to when I became a defence wife. But I think I'd say pursue your own passions, have your own career if that's what you want. If you want to stay at home and have babies, you've got choices. Support the person who's 
in the defence force and I suppose you have to adjust to being alone and make the most of the adventure, the moving and the different places you can go to. And I know a lot of people don't do that now, but the defence force is not going to tell a wife what to do. And I think it's up to the couple to decide. There's no right or wrong way. Everyone has to do it their way and spend time together when you can and enjoy being a family. Well, thank you, Mrs. Hurley, for taking the time to come on the Military Wife Life podcast. I'm sending you luck with finally beating the Governor-General at sequence. I know that you can do it for us. Go the women. I know you can do it, definitely. (laughs) And all the very best with your podcasts. What you're doing is very special. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 